0: Before we talk about this text, and actually last week's text too, there's a lot to go over with Thomas even leading into this passage, let's remind ourselves of who we are by faith in the Lord Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. For the past few weeks, we've had the privilege and opportunity to really explore very deeply the power that moves us from darkness into the marvelous light, that being the power of the resurrection. We've seen how in this resurrection, God is doing a new thing. He's renewing his creation. Last week, in specific, we saw the episode of Thomas and how Thomas's doubts of the resurrection, his disbelief that God might be doing a new thing, was not met with what we think it would be met with, that being cursing or punishment, but actually it was met with Christ's patience and his mercy and his grace. Thomas, this twin, was not present at Christ's first appearing to the disciples, and so he missed the presence of Christ. And moreover, he missed the Holy Spirit being breathed into him. This is one of the ways that John is showing us the resurrection is actually a new creation. Because as Christ comes to the disciples and he breathes his Holy Spirit into them and they become spiritually alive, what does that remind us of? God breathing life into something. Does that remind us of Adam in the garden where God takes from the ground, but Adam is an inanimate being until Yahweh breathes life, breathes his spirit into Adam, who then becomes a living being. You see, in a sense, we're, we're kind of being reminded of that story. Thomas was like an inanimate being in doubt. He wasn't a living being with the Holy Spirit like the other disciples were. He was not a believer in the resurrection of Jesus' uh, resurrection until Christ comes and in in, in demonstrates the evidence to him, he says, until I see what he demanded from God, I will never believe. Do you remember that part in the story? I think that there's a tiny bit of twist or irony that can be captured in a way that's a little comedic or a little humorous, that Thomas so is, is so sure, I've never going to believe. And then what does John say? Like lifting a line straight out of SpongeBob SquarePants. Eight <laughs> days later, right? It does not take very long for God to change Thomas's mind. Eight days later. Christ appears graciously before Thomas, speaks peace over him, in patience and mercy, demonstrates for him Evidence of his resurrection. And Thomas confesses with his mouth. Having believed in his heart that Jesus was raised, he confesses with his mouth, Jesus is the Lord God. That's an incredibly important story. And there's so much to it, right? It's just like the rest of the gospel. What was that saying that the gospel is shallow enough for children to play in, but deep enough for men and women to swim and this is one of those scenarios where there's just not enough time in the day to unpack everything that that means. And so last week, when we were looking at this narrative with Jesus approaching Thomas' doubts, one of the things we wanted to do was speak into um, kind of how this story speaks to us currently today in the midst of a pandemic. We talked about the importance of community. Because remember, Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus appeared to him and breathed his Holy Spirit into them. So Thomas was robbed of the blessing of Christ's presence because Thomas robbed himself of presence with the disciples. So Jack asked a really important question. Are we missing out on such blessings? And In a time like this, in a pandemic, fellowshipping and meeting with each other can be difficult. But even with that difficulty, are we taking steps not to neglect the meeting of the saints or the assembly of the saints, the King James says in Hebrews chapter 10? Are we gathering if possible? If it's not possible, are we communicating, are we fellowshipping with each other? Are we using the blessing of technology to do so? Are we supplementing our worship for opportunities of intimate fellowship with one another? That's a really important question to ask and one that the text asks of itself. But there's another thing I want to explore with this passage. So for this reason, we are going to dip back into last week's passage a little bit before we go into these two verses in 30 and 31. Because I I want us to see John is continuing this project of framing the passion, the mission, the work, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a project of new creation that God is recreating he is renewing in the midst of brokenness and sin and darkness to help us do this I want us to keep in mind four phrases and I'll point them out as we reread the text from last week leading into the text of this week verse 24 if you want to follow along now Thomas one of the twelve called the twin remember that Thomas was a twin was not with them the disciples when Jesus came So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, unless I see the hands, or unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, specifically eight, not seven, not six, not nine, eight days later, that's important. The disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace. That's an important word. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him the only way he could. My Lord, my God. Remember what Thomas calls Jesus after he believes in his heart that the resurrection is true. All throughout John's gospel, like I've said, we've been seeing Jesus with in the beginning, and so John begins his gospel in the beginning. As the world in Genesis was covered in darkness until God spoke light into existence, so John says that Jesus is the light of man and that he shines in darkness. As the first Adam fell in disobedience to God in the Garden of Eden, so we just recently saw how the last Adam stands in obedience to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. John has been sprinkling these connections, these echoes, these callbacks all throughout his gospel. God is doing a work of recreation through his son. Do you see it? He asks. And we continue to see this kind of thing in the resurrection as well. As Eve expressed disbelief that led to death in the garden, who was the first witness of the resurrection? Mary. Mary. A woman, Mary, expresses belief that leads to life in another garden. Did you notice that? As God breathed his spirit into Adam, as we've already seen, and he became a living man, so Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into the disciples and they become spiritually alive. Again, with the new creation So it's not surprising that we might even see the new creation occurring in the story of Thomas. And not only that, but John's actually pushing it out of Genesis into new territory, Exodus, the rest of the Torah, into even the rest of the Old Testament that John is saying what happened and was foreshadowed in the Old Testament is happening here again. And because of it, we live in a new world. John is carrying the newness of the resurrection out of the Garden of Eden and into the lives of even the Old Testament saints and scriptures. Let me explain. Remind me again, what was Thomas called? The twin. Okay, why do we need to know that detail? It's not like we're watching a TV show and there's two people that are doppelgangers and we have to keep them straight. You don't have to tell us that, John. I can't see... Thomas. And if Thomas's brother has a different name, we can keep them apart pretty well. John is very careful with his words. He doesn't put things in for no reason. And he's not like me who throws in facts just because I think they're fun and interesting. John's not like there's Thomas. Oh, he was a twin. I just think it's cool. No, that's not what's happening here. He's very careful with his words. He's being inspired by the Spirit. It's not so strange that John calls Thomas the twin when we consider that word, or twin, or to be a twin, in light of a very old story, the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Who's the most famous set of twins in the Old Testament? Jacob and Esau. Remember those guys? These are grandsons of Abraham, sons of Isaac, when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant, there was some turmoil in her womb, and she asked God, what's going on? And God said, you have two nations growing in you. They're going to war with each other. And interestingly enough, the younger, Jacob, will serve the older, Esau. When she gives birth, Esau is technically the older, even though they're both twins. But Jacob holds Esau's heel during the delivery, right? Right? a foreshadowing of how Jacob was going to trip or to trip up Esau. Because later in their life, Jacob tricks Esau into giving him the firstborn birthright for a cup of soup. There is no cup of soup in the world (laughs) that should want you to hand over the richness of the inheritance that you would have received as a firstborn male in this culture and in this society. How is it? that Jacob is the blessed one and Esau is not, because Esau gave up his birthright. Now, why in the world, aside from the obvious, he was super hungry, would Esau have given up his birthright? I think it's because Esau didn't really believe in the birthright to begin with. In other words, he didn't really believe the God of his fathers. He didn't believe the promises that God had made through his father and his grandfather. He didn't believe the story in Genesis where God says, I'm going to fix what sin has done through your progeny, Eve. And he didn't see himself in the grand narrative of God's redemption. Disbelief, doubt. Esau lacked faith. Esau disbelieved. And for these reasons, mixed with a hungry tummy Esau despised his birthright, Genesis says. Later, God explains, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And so that despising of the birthright, because of doubt, because of faithlessness, actually led to a cursing on Esau. This twin, in the Old Testament, Esau's disbelief, led to a forfeiture of blessing and an invitation of God's rejection. In other words, Esau the twin disbelieved, and he was cursed. Now, we get to the New Testament. And we get to a new twin. And we see that Jesus is doing a new thing with this twin. Something very different than what was done with the first twin. Even though there's some similarities, aren't there? Like Esau, Thomas was a twin, obviously. And like Esau, Thomas did not believe. Thomas lacked faith in God's promises to his fathers. Thomas disbelieved in God's covenant with his people. He didn't see Jesus as the fulfillment of the messianic hope that his people had hoped for for generations. So Thomas declared, I will never believe. And this twin, Thomas, this twin's disbelief led to the same place as the other, or it should have, a forfeiture of blessing in an invitation of God's rejection. But is that what happened? No. See, Thomas' story did not end the way that Esau's story ended. The New Testament twin story has a different ending than the Old Testament twin's story, where the first twin disbelieved God's invitation and that disbelief invited God's absence in his life the second twin's disbelief actually called for God's presence in his life. You see that? Where Esau's misplaced trust cost him his birthright, Thomas's misplaced trust was overcome by the one who gave him a new birthright. John tells us in the first chapter, verse 12, the right to be a child of God. Well, what's going on there? What is John trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us this. God is doing a new thing in his son. In a world after Easter, which is the one we currently live in today, disbelieving twins are not met with cursing, but with grace. Disbelieving twins are not left to their doubts, but they are pursued by the very source of faith itself. Because of the resurrection, Thomas is not the old twin who is cursed, but the new twin who is blessed. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we all have been given a new chance for our doubts to be forgiven and to embrace the risen Lord who pursues us in our doubting. If that's the case, let me ask this question. How many disbelieving twins in the sound of my voice have resolved themselves to giving up? Maybe you, uh, at one point, held faith. You gave it up for some reason. But as life has unfolded through the years, you feel this persistent calling to come back home, back to the Father. And yet, there's doubt that keeps you there. I think it's really interesting that doubt moves you away from God, and then even if you want to come back, doubt keeps you there. And let let me share why. This is a doubt that moves you away from God, it's very common, right? Perhaps doubt in his character, his nature, his word, etc. But then when you want to come back, it's doubt in God's promises. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe my sin is too deep. Maybe God would just reject me. What if I've sold my birthright forever? And John's message for us is this: In the resurrection world, there are no Esau's, there are Thomas's. Why? We don't have a birthright to give. None. We only have Christ's birthright to receive. Because God allows his son to be rejected so that we might be accepted. Because there is no sin too deep where Christ's blood will not sink to me. And because Christ is good, so good that he comes to us even in our doubts. God is doing a new thing in a new world. In the old world, faithless Esau's were met with cursing. But in this new world, doubting Thomases are met with grace. Do we know that to be true? If you're one of those Thomases, do you know that to be true? And believers, if you're not one of those Thomases, which, by the way, we all are at some point in our lives, okay, but if we're not there at this point in our life, are there Thomases around us that we're treating more like Esau's, that we're not gentle with their doubt? That, look, here's the deal. Jesus came to Thomas in his doubt, not to argue with him, but to be present with him and show him, I'm risen, <laughs> So what are we supposed to do with doubting Thomas' in our life but to take them to the presence of Christ and let Jesus do the talking? Or do we treat them like Esau's? You gave up your birthright. You're hopeless. There's no such thing as hopelessness now. The tomb is empty. We live in a new world. The other thing I wanted to point out, which um, is really cool, is the eight days thing. Isn't it strange that John says, after eight days, uh, Jesus approached Thomas. Why not just round her off and call it a week? <laughs> eight days, that's really, sp- you know what, actually, it's interesting that some translations actually do that. Um, some, of the more po- some popular translations say, after a week. Um, the ESV does not do that, KGV does not do that. Funny enough, the message doesn't do that, everybody dogs the message, but Eugene Peterson knows what's up. John is careful with his words he didn't mean a week he didn't mean nine days he meant eight days why why are eight days so important let's go back to the Old Testament for a second what happened to every Hebrew boy when they were eight days old circumcision some of you are like time out what that's new to me that's strange why did we take this left turn into circumcision circumcision <laughs> circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. God commanded Abraham and those in his household, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign. What's John telling us about verses 30 and 31? These signs were done so you would believe, right? So signs are important. Okay, this is a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's an intimate sign of membership in God's covenant community. Ideally, the only two people who will see this sign are the man and his wife. In other words, the individual man and the one who rules his household with him. See the point? Why circumcision? is a tangible reminder that they have been cut away from something. That Israel has been cut away from the world. That's what holy means, to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be cut away for a relationship and for a purpose. This was a brand that you are a member in God's kingdom and if you were that guy's wife, your household now are members of God's kingdom too. To be circumcised in the Old Testament meant you were part of God's covenant community, you were part of the covenant of peace between sinners and a holy God. This is important because the Old Testament prophets foresaw a day when God would bring us a new circumcision. Instead of male-only physical circumcision, this new circumcision would be for both male and female, and it would be a spiritual circumcision of the heart. In other words, your desires, your affections, your loves, sin in their heart would be cut away, and that their heart as a whole would be sanctified. It would be made holy. It would be pulled away from the world, and branded to be a part of God's kingdom. Jeremiah predicts this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. How am I supposed to remove the foreskin of my heart? I didn't even know there was a foreskin of my heart. Am I supposed to open heart surgery and have somebody cut it? No, is saying there's something better coming, something in our future. And Paul tells us this explicitly, that this circumcision of our hearts that Jeremiah predicted is faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 2:11 through 12, in him also were you circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Well, then who's doing it? Someone without hands. Who doesn't have hands? Holy Spirit. This is a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How? Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. To place faith, placing faith in Christ. And to be circumcised in the heart is to be branded as part of God's new kingdom. And to be circumcised in the heart means to be cut away from the world, sanctified, made holy for the purpose of having a relationship with God and participating in the new things that he's doing. In other words, it's not random, it's not by accident that Christ comes to Thomas on the eighth day and Thomas places his faith in Christ when he sees his resurrected body, thus having his heart circumcised. You see what John is saying? The resurrection means we live in a new eighth day. On the old eighth day, Hebrew boys entered into the covenant community by virtue of being born, and then they were confirmed by circumcision on the eighth day. But now, all men and women enter into the covenant community by virtue of being born again. John 3. And conformed on a, and not conformed, but confirmed on a new eighth day by the circumcision of their heart by faith. That's what John's trying to point out. Everything in the Old Testament, everything you hoped for, Its name is Jesus. And it's not just any kind of covenant that we're brought into, not just any kind of relationship. It's a covenant of peace. That as sinners, we rebel and wrestle against a holy God. There cannot be peace unless there is reconciliation. And the Old Testament says that reconciliation is coming. That this covenant relationship that God has made with us, part of the blessing of it is peace. This is why we say the ironic blessing, number six, over the congregation Marcel every single week, that the peace, the shalom of God would rest heavy. Where? In your heart. This covenant of peace isn't even just an individual covenant between us and God, but it would include a community of people. It would be like a kingdom of peace. The Messiah was foretold to be kind of this royalty over this uh, peace kingdom, right? So Isaiah 6, you're probably going to read it because it's Christmas. Jesus is described as going to be the the prince of peace. And the peace in his kingdom would increase. And the, the, the kingdom would have no end. There's an English, or maybe it's a German man. I can't remember. There's a really neat translation of that passage in another language uh, that that doesn't say that the, the the increase of peace or that his kingdom would have no end. It says that his kingdom would know no frontier. Think about that. I love that. There isn't anywhere where his peace can't go because there's nowhere that he doesn't own. Is it any wonder then that when Christ greets the faithless Thomas, the first thing he says to him is reminding him of the promise he hopes for, participation in the covenant of what? Peace be with you. The prince of peace who rules over a kingdom of peace that enjoys an increase of peace that knows no end comes to downing Thomas and says, peace. And what other response could Thomas have had but to rightly confess Jesus' who he is in his person, my Lord and my God, what does that remind us of? What's God called commonly in the Old Testament? The Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. Here, Thomas is identifying Israel's God with the incarnate Christ. That's deep. You see, John is showing us that the resurrection means we live in a new world a world in which doubting twins are not cursed, but they're blessed, even though they don't deserve it, a world in which hearts are circumcised by faith, called out to this new world, and a world in which the Lord God himself comes to us to offer us peace. And the way he's doing it is through signs. This is getting to our two passages today, verse 30 and 30, like that's the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever heard, like you have no idea. I've got 50 pages of notes, so I'm I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, that's a threat. Um, The way that John is doing this, there's been signs all throughout the Gospel of John, and John's saying these signs have been pointing to the point I'm trying to make, which is, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the Son of God. And to believe in Him is to enter into that covenant community, is to be circumcised by the heart. Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there it is, signs. That's really important. But I want to do a timeout, two two footnotes here on this passage before we move on. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. On the heels of the story we just read about Thomas, what does he mean by other signs? It means he must have performed a sign. We're all familiar with this sign, and he's saying, okay, in addition to the sign he just performed, he did a bunch of other signs too, right? So what is the sign he's talking about? The resurrection. John says the capital sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the fact that he left the tomb after three days of being dead. The resurrection is the capital S sign. And John says, there's a bunch of other ones too, but this one, this one, this one is the most important. Do not give up the resurrection. Right? Second footnote. It feels like, if we're being honest, it feels like John's kind of winding things down right here. Now, he did a bunch of other signs. And then he goes on to say, these signs were written so that you might believe and believe you might have life in his name. And right there, if you wrote the end, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. The story kind of ends. But if you look at the Bible, you're like, we have another chapter to go through, though. And there's a lot of biblical scholars that have noticed that and said, huh, it seems like John ended the book at verse 31, but then there's like a whole extra chapter afterwards. So what must have happened was people after John died added a bunch of stuff, kind of stapled it on there for extra credit. I don't buy this story. I don't believe that that's true. And here's why. This isn't evidence that John has been tampered with. To me, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is a master storyteller. Because the best storytellers end their stories firmly, but with a tiny glimpse of what's about to come as a result. We all are aware of this if you've been to the movie theaters in the past 10 years and have watched the Marvel Cinematic Movies. Who's been there? Okay. How many of you who have been to a Marvel superhero movie that when the movie ended and everybody applauded, and the credits started to roll, you picked up your coat and your purse and your popcorn box, and you walked away? Who did that during the credits? Maybe three of you because the rest of us stayed put. Because we know something you apparently don't. They're going to give us a teaser of what's to come. Not just going to let us hang in about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. That's masterful storytelling, isn't it? The story is told, but there's a postscript to say, more yet to come. And That is John chapter 21, the post-credit scene. So keep your popcorn. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks. All right, out of those footnotes, back into the main text. Let's reread chapter, not chapter 30, there's no chapter 30. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book. Okay, well that begs a question to be asked, well if they're not in John, where else are they? We can read them in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But then, even then, John's going to add a caveat. This is the very last verse of, of, chapter, uh, of John. He's going to say, look, Jesus did so many things that if we wrote them all down, we'd run out of ink and the world would run out of space because the books that would need to be written would fill the entire world. So do we know every single miracle, every single sign that Jesus performed? No. But if 2 Timothy 3.16 is true and all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by his Holy Spirit, then the miracles that we do have are the ones that he desires us to know, and he desires us to know them for a purpose. And here's the, here's the implicit warning that John's giving us. Any one or any work that claims to deliver to you other so-called recorded miracles or signs of Jesus that are beyond the scope of scripture want to take you there beyond the scope of scripture. See what I'm saying? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, God just kind of like downloaded a bunch of extra miracles into my head and I'm gonna share them with you. Or hey, I discovered extra scripture and I translated it and like, there's all these extra miracles that I'm gonna tell you about. Look, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you extra away from Scripture. They're trying to take you away from Scripture. And John is giving us this gentle pastoral warning. Keep it here. This is sufficient. You don't need anything extra. You don't need anything beyond the scope of Scripture. Why? Because he says these were recorded for a specific purpose. And John, of all the other gospel writers, if he says that, you should pay attention because how many miracles, how many signs did John record? The least of all the others. He's got eight. Okay? So we'll say seven. Like, that's the the commentary answer. I don't, I think there's eight. Here's why. Think about the miracles. Think about the signs. Water into wine. Healing the official son. Healing the paralytic. Multiplying the loaves and fishes. Walking on water. Healing the blind man. Raising Lazarus from dead. And the commentaries would be like, there's seven signs Jesus gave. Like, he gave one more. He rose from death. Okay, so let's go with eight. And then, and then Jesus, or John says, he did other signs. So the resurrection is a sign, okay? So if you're reading commentaries or something like that, like, John only records seven signs. Like, mm, add one, please. The resurrection's kind of important, right? So he, he gave eight signs. That's it. But the reason he records just the eight Is a is for a specific reason. He tells us this. We don't even have to wonder. Verse 31, but these, these what, these signs, these miracles, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's a purpose or a reason to why only these signs. In other words, by the Spirit's guidance, Christ, so that we might believe in him. You see, Christ's miracle signs are telling us much more than what we would suppose. They're telling us a lot more than Jesus can do cool stuff. It's telling us much more than God can do amazing things. Listen to this, the signs are not even given so that you would believe God exists. Some of you are like, what? Let me say it again. The signs, the miracles of Jesus are not given primarily so that you might know God exists. Why? Even the demons believe in shudder, and they're not saved. You see, Christ's miracle signs are given so that you would not only believe God exists, but that he desires to save you exclusively through his son. That's why the miracles are there. That's why the signs are there. God's not a magician trying to impress you. He doesn't need to. He's God. The signs are meant to communicate the most precious truth you could ever hear in your life, God loves you, and he desires to save you through the blood and the resurrection of his son. The resurrection is the exclamation point at the end of two sentences. Sentence one, it is finished. Sentence two, peace be with you. Keep those two sayings together. Link them in your mind forever. Because it is finished is Christ's atoning work, and peace be with you is the blessing we receive from the resurrected Christ. One is speaking of Christ's condensation to death, the other is speaking to his ascension to life. It is finished, peace be with you, are the proclamation that God is making through his son over creation, the one that he is making new even as we speak today, but only through his son. These are why the signs were recorded, John says. But these signs are written so that you might believe. Believe what? Two things. Thing one, Jesus is the Christ. Thing two, Jesus is the son of the living God. Why should I believe those two things, John says, so that by believing you may have life in his name, salvation. You see, all scripture hoped for a Messiah that would one day come to save us from sin and brokenness, from rebellion and justice. And they looked for signs that God would fulfill his promise that he was sending his Messiah, Messiah. I think categorically there were two primary ways in which the Old Testament saints hoped for this Messiah. Way number one was that they hoped for an anointed Savior to redeem God's people who would come with his kingdom. Okay? The word mis- Christ is the Hebrew word Messiah. I know they don't sound the same, but they're related. And Messiah means anointed one. Somebody who's been anointed, set aside for God's purpose. So the Old Testament saints hoped for someone who would be kind of like a greater anointed one or a greater Moses, we'll say. A greater Moses leading people out of a greater Egypt toward a greater exodus for a greater kingdom. The other way that they hoped was more of like royalty. They hoped for a king, someone who was a son of God. Someone who would be greater than David and would rule over a greater kingdom one without any frontier of his righteousness and goodness and peace and would rule in perfection. And it's these two hopes, John says, in just this tiny little sentence, that Jesus fulfilled. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the long-awaited for Messiah, the greater Moses. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he enjoys the most intimate of relationships with the Father, and by faith you are placed in him to have that proximity to God. And, bonus, he's our creator and our sustainer and our king. He's the greater David. Everything you hope for in David and everything you hope for in the kingdom of Israel is realized in Christ. Believe that, and salvation will be near. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You see, without the name of Christ and without his work, there is no hope in the world. And it's merely by believing in his name What's his name in Hebrew? Yeshua. What does that mean? God saves. By believing God saves by Jesus, you will have life, John promises. I think this is as much a challenge as it is an invitation that John is issuing to us. I mean, we cannot forget that he's saying this immediately after the story of Thomas's doubt, where Thomas's doubt was essentially evaporated in the presence of the resurrected Lord. Why? Because Thomas made a demand that he ought not to have. But graciously, Jesus was merciful enough to show him exactly what he needed. What do I mean by that? Thomas said, I'll believe on one condition. I see, blank, whatever he wanted as evidence. And how often do we do the same thing that Thomas does? Our belief in Christ is conditioned So the formula is this, Christ's testimony plus whatever I want equals my belief, as if God owes us something. And we hear examples of this in our own hearts and in the lives of people around us all the time. Unless God appears to me in the sky and calls me by name, I will never believe him. And to that I say, like, well, read it, (laughs) Paul. Be careful what you ask for, right? Uh, Unless God blesses this relationship that I want, I'm never going to believe him unless God gives you the job I want or gets me into the program at that school that I want to, I'm never going to believe him. John says, stop. Stop demanding. God owes you nothing, but he's given you everything. He's given you and the world his only son, his Messiah, his Christ. You have what you need. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the challenge, isn't it? Well, why is that? Because at the core of salvation is two simple affirmations. Paul lays it out very clearly for us in Romans 10 9. If you, A, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and B, believe in your hearts that God rose him from the dead, then you may be saved. Then you might be saved. Then the possibility of saving is open to you. No to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is the natural reaction of belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John puts it like this. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, i.e. the risen Lord, and that by believing you may have life, you'll be saved in his name. And is this not exactly what happened to Thomas? It's essentially like Paul may have actually had the story of Thomas in mind when he wrote those words in Romans 10:9. Think about the order of events. Did he not confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord? And why did he confess that? It had to have been because he had a heart change. What changed his heart? Seeing that Jesus was risen from death. So a belief that Jesus was raised from death led to a confession that Jesus is Lord, Thomas is circumcised in heart. He's a disciple. He's a member of the new kingdom in this new creation, and this is available to us today, John says. This is why I wrote this gospel. Simple, childlike belief that Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and will do what he promises he will do. That's it. Mere faith that Christ is risen, and that he is Lord. Nothing more, nothing less. Why? Because that belief is what justifies us before God. It declares us, who are sinners, to be innocent, not because we are, but because Christ was. And not because we're obedient, but because Christ was. And not because we're faithful, but because Christ was. And not because we're perfect, but because Christ was. And all those blessings, innocence, obedience, Faithfulness, perfection, we can add countless, wholeness, peace, etc., are all counted to us and given to us freely by God's grace through faith alone. That to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that his signs point to a new kingdom of grace is to believe that although we deserve to be dead in our rebellious sins outside of his kingdom and enslaved to sin, God has nevertheless, by grace alone, sent his only Son to rescue us from death. Through his death, and to bring us back to life through his resurrection. Paul says it like this in Romans 4 24 faith will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? Our justification. To believe in the resurrection is to be justified in the eyes of sight, in the in the eyes of God, because you are. Place your faith in Christ's work and not your own. John says it's Christ's signs that ultimately point to faith, a faith that leads to life. So as we end, I want to ask ask this question. What signs for which kingdom are you looking for? There are all sorts of signs for all manners of kingdoms in this world, aren't there? Some are cultural, some are political. We look for signs in the news, social media, film and music, in education and learning. We yearn to see the kind of signs that point us to the kingdoms that we want the most, to our own personal utopias, the ideal of what we think things should be. And we look for those signs among the chaos, and we find patterns in the chaos when they're not there. And it leads to confusion and strife and division, doesn't it? We want to go to these utopias, these kingdoms where, from our perspective, the best thing is when wealth overflows, or when personal and selfish experience is endless, or where authenticity is king, or where our preferred ideologies are the law of the land and they are practiced in perfection. We like looking for signs to those utopias, don't we? You know what the funny thing is about the word utopia? It was coined uh, by a guy named Thomas More, in the 16th century for a book titled, Utopia. And uh, he took two Greek words together. Ooh, no or not, and then "topas" which means place. Ironically, utopias, by definition, don't exist. They're figments of our imagination, oasis in a desert. They're not real. So it's ironic that we romanticize about utopias, looking for signs to take us there to places that don't actually exist. But here's the funny thing about utopia: add an e to the front of it and pronounce it how we pronounce it, utopia. Now, what have you done to the word? U in Greek means good, topas being place, the good place. There is a good place: the kingdom of God, the true utopia spelled with an e. The place where wealth isn't counted materially. We literally walk on the material. We think it's important here. Streets of gold, right? But wealth is measured in mercy and grace. How rich you are depends on your mercy, your grace, your faithfulness. The place where the experience of true love comes from love's ultimate source and never ends. It's not a relationship that's fleeting. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't abandon you. The good place is a place where our personal authenticity is not king. I know no one wants to hear that in our culture. But here's what we need to hear. The good place is not a place where your personal authenticity is king. The good place is a place where the authentic king is. Yeah? And he gives us true meaning and purpose and value. To be authentically yourself is to find meaning and purpose and value in you, that's the problem, you're created a part of a fallen order. It might work for a little bit, might bring you some happiness, in the long run, it doesn't. What we need is to find our meaning, purpose, and value in the creator, and he rules and reigns in the good place, the kingdom of God, and gives us meaning and purpose and value. And finally, this is a good place where our preferred ideologies aren't the law but the one who fulfilled the law ordains and leads by his perfect idea of goodness and justice and mercy and flourishing to our blessing. Why look for signs to no place when Christ is giving you signs to the good place, his kingdom? Where are you looking to find meaning, purpose, acceptance, joy, and love? Where are you looking to discover healing or forgiveness or relief or guiltlessness Friends, the world is filled with signs pointing to nowhere, but the gospel is filled with sign after sign after sign pointing to the good place and the king who rules it. Follow his signs, respond to his words. It is finished. Peace be with you. Believe in your heart that he was raised from death. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gospel, for your servant and our brother John, for the inspiration of the Spirit for him to pen these words to give us hard truth, soft comfort. Father, we confess to you that we look for signs to places that will only lead to death, but that you are giving us signs that lead to life in the name of Of our Savior, and so Father, I pray that we look to these signs; that You would send Your Holy Spirit daily to remind our hearts that they have been circumcised by faith, that we are members of a new community, that we're circumcised on a new eighth day, that we live in a new kingdom now, in a new world, led by Your Son. I pray that in moments when we doubt, when we see people doubting around us like Thomas, we would respond as the Lord did with grace and mercy. Not to bring them evidence, but to bring them to you where evidence is abundant. And to follow your signs back to your empty tomb and upward to you sitting enthroned on your eternal glory. We love you and it's in your son's name that we pray these things, amen.